0: Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Mark chapter 10. We're in an ongoing series on the Gospel of Mark entitled, Follow Me, What Does It Mean to Be Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so if you're uh, joining us this morning, maybe for the first time, I want you to know that we're in the midst of that series, and we've come now over the halfway mark into uh, this Gospel of, of Mark to chapter 10, Jesus has been teaching his uh, disciples, and now we see at the opening of this uh, text that he's gone into the region of Judea. He has has broadened out from Capernaum, which is where we had uh, left him, and now he is uh, beyond the Jordan River, and the crowds have begun to gather again as he teaches, and then he teaches specifically this morning a, a sensitive subject, a subject that in a variety of ways touches all of our Lives One that we'll uh, give consideration from a variety of different standpoints this morning. But an important teaching, uh, nonetheless, from the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice this, teaching on marriage and divorce uh, from Mark chapter 10. Let's pick up the reading there in verse 1. And he, that is Jesus, uh, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house of the disciples or in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we need your help, and you have promised such help to be sent by the Spirit, the Spirit who we know together today abides with us as your people, the Spirit who even right now abides closely to those here in this room, who is present where two or three are gathered in your name, who is present when your word is read and proclaimed, we would ask that He would come now in power and in clarity and that He would speak transformatively into the lives of every one of us as we seek to think Your thoughts after You and to be faithful in following You, to drink deeply of Your grace. Come and meet us here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I noted before we even read the text a second ago that we're in the midst of a series. I want to remind you yet again, as I reminded you last week if you were with us, that it is not my intention to choose the hardest text on the face of the earth in the Scriptures to preach to you week after week. But it just so happens that we dealt with the matter of hell last week and the severity of killing sin. And as the Lord would have it, the very next passage deals with a subject matter that is very sensitive. A matter dealing with marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now, as I look at this text with you this morning, I want to acknowledge that we need the whole of the Bible's teaching when we come to this matter. And that's my goal in looking at this passage with us today is certainly to deal with Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12, but to also cast a wider net this morning, which is why I want to encourage you to have a Bible in hand today. You'll find one in the rack in front of you. You might even uh, find one on your lap now as you're looking along uh, with me in, in Mark chapter 10. Uh, this uh, passage, as important and as critical as it is, To teach us about the nature of marriage and divorce is not the only place, of course, in the Scripture where this subject matter is addressed. And it's important that as we speak about it, that we get a sense of the Scripture's holistic teaching on this matter. So that we don't walk away with an incomplete notion or idea regarding the teaching on marriage and divorce and and remarriage. And so you might even notice from uh, my title this morning, a look at the Bible's teaching we're going to be in... Uh, several different uh, passages. Now, we won't be able to give all of these passages the kind of treatment, as you might imagine, that I would like to give uh, these passages. So I do hope that uh, you will uh, engage them later in some way and maybe even uh, approach me or others, pastors, elders here at Cornerstone with questions about areas that we may uh, not be able to address fully as it regards this important matter. Now, I can only imagine that as we look at this text and as we approach this subject, some of you are thinking, why did I come to church today? Why did, I, why did I come? I did not know. I should have looked ahead of the bulletin and seen what it was that was going to be addressed. This subject is very difficult and very sensitive for many of us in this room. Every one of us in some way has been touched by the subject of divorce. Uh, maybe you have... Uh, never been married and you have longed to be, and so even the subject of marriage is painful uh, for you as we address it this morning. Uh, some of you are married and, and um, have regretted that you are, if we were honest about that. Some of you feel trapped in that marriage that you're in. Uh, some of us have been divorced in this room and and maybe even still today feel something of the pain and the even the stigma that sometimes goes along with the reality of divorce. Maybe you're a child um, who has divorced parents. Maybe you're a parent who has divorced children. Or maybe a grandparent who has divorced uh, grandchildren. Um, Maybe you're sitting next to your second spouse or even a third spouse today and you're happily remarried um, maybe you're sitting next to them and thinking, "I carry a lot of baggage into this marriage uh, from previous marriages." And this is as almost as painful as the previous ones. These are a few of the circumstances in our room. This is a very personal and sensitive subject. It's very easy to incite negative responses, emotional responses, when any of these subject matters are addressed. And I am aware that as I tread in this subject this morning, it would be very easy to add insult to injury where it's already present, even when we're trying to simply and clearly and graciously share forth God's Word and what it is that He is speaking to us. This is a very personal matter. It's also a very complicated matter. A very complicated matter. Every marriage and divorce and remarriage circumstance has unique situations and peculiarities to it. There are certain challenges that every single one of us face within the institution of marriage. And whenever a sermon like this comes around, some of us are out there listening. Is he going to address my particular circumstance? And is he going to tell me I was right? Is that what he's going to do today. I pray that's what he is going to do today. The tendency, I do think, is to look at our own circumstance and to look for uh, what it is we want to hear. But that's not why we're here, is it? We're here to hear from the Lord. We're here to hear from God's Word. And sometimes we can miss what it is that God is going to say to us today because we have ears only for what we want to hear. Let's pray that we would hear God's Word and what He would have to say to us. I further note that I'm on the clock, even as I say that, I recognize that I'm on the clock and that this sermon can't address every potential circumstance. And so I do want to encourage you, as I said at the beginning, that as we enter into this situation, addressing this subject matter, if you have questions about it, please speak with us. We would love to hear from you. We would love to wrestle with the text of Scripture and your circumstance uh, together Um, And happily, uh, we would consider that a privilege to do so. It's also very clear that this is not always very clear when we get to this subject. Now, I don't mean about the Bible's teaching. I mean about the circumstances we find ourselves in and what we should do in them. One of the things that we should know about sin in particular is that it complicates matters. It makes things difficult to know what to do. It's uncertain oftentimes. Let me give you just an example or two before we jump in. A husband who commits uh, adultery. And he's demonstrably uh, repentant. As far as we can see, it has not been a serial matter in his life. The wife is, of course, deeply wounded by this betrayal. Understandably so. She recognizes the Bible calls her to be reconciled, but also gives her permission to divorce. What should she do? That's a difficult question. I don't venture even to be able to ask and answer that fully for her in this moment. That may be some of the circumstances here in this room. A wife divorced for unbiblical reasons before she knew Christ, and then she was radically converted. Should she continue to remain unmarried, or does she have the opportunity to now be remarried? Or should she be reconciled with her former husband, who, by the way, is not a Christian? (laughs) Which 1 Corinthians tells us would be unequally yoked? What should she do? A husband is abusive to his wife, he's verbally threatening. They've had one physical altercation. The wife is broken hearted, wounded. She looks to the Bible for her specific circumstance and does not find it. What does she do? These are some of the complications in this subject matter. And we need to appreciate those deeply as we approach it. And we need help from the Lord to be able to do so. Now, as we have laid the groundwork for be able to address this subject, you can see all of the potentialities that are out there. And many more that we can't name. What are we going to do in this message? Three things I want to do with you this morning, and it will be somewhat teachery as we address this text, just to help us understand the Bible's instruction. I want you to see first the Bible's teaching, And our position as a local congregation on these matters. And second, I want to speak personally and practically to you on this subject. Because it deserves that. It's a very, very personal and important spiritual matter. And thirdly, we want to consider this matter in relationship to the whole of the Bible's teaching. Most specifically, the centrality of the gospel itself. Because this message is directly related to the gospel. I want to start with this lesson, number one, point one in our text together today, is that Jesus teaches us here in Mark 10, consistent with all of the Bible's teaching, that marriage is a God-created and ordained one flesh union between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Let me say that again. That marriage is a God-created and ordained, one-flesh union between one man and one woman for a lifetime. That's the teaching of Jesus, specifically there in verses 6 through 9 of Mark uh, chapter 10. Now, I want to ask the question, why is Jesus actually addressing this matter in this way at this point in Mark chapter 10. And why does he reference, as he does, Genesis chapter 2 and the establishment of marriage? And it's that little um, note that we're given in verse 2. The Pharisees came up and in order to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now I just want you to notice that there's a test All of this instruction on marriage comes in the context of a test. This is to say that Jesus is addressing the matter that is right before him in the circumstance that he is in. He's not here giving a full biblical theology on everything related to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. He's not with his disciples giving a systematic treatment. He's he's speaking to those who are trying to destroy him. (laughs) They're they're there to test him. He's not going to give them ammo. He's going to do his very best to answer this question in the appropriate way, biblically speaking, and say what needs to be said in this moment. Now, what is the nature, though, of this test? What's really going on historically and situationally behind this instruction? Well, I'd like to suggest that the question of lawfulness with regards to divorce and remarriage was an issue in the first century at this moment that was all over the tabloids. One particular high-profile breakup had just occurred in the first century. Mark has actually mentioned it in the gospel itself, in Mark chapter 6. You may remember that King Herod, who was overseeing at that point the Roman province, which um, the disciples are in, had just married the lovely Herodias. The only problem with their marriage was that Herodias had been previously married to Philip, Herod's brother. That's right, Herod had stolen his brother's wife and she had left her his brother in order to marry him. Now John the Baptist in Mark chapter 6 actually calls them out for this. That's where we actually see this. In Mark chapter 6, verse 17, John the Baptist says to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He says it is sin. It is wrong for you to have your brother's wife. And that courageous statement by John the Baptist infuriated Herodias. Uh, so much so that she looked for an opportunity to kill John the Baptist. That was her desire. And you may remember back in Mark chapter 6 how Herod at a, intoxicated at a party had Herodias' daughter dance before him and all of the men who were present. And then he promised Herodias' daughter that he would give to her whatever it is that she wanted up to half of his kingdom. And do you remember what she asked for? The head of John the Baptist. Why did she ask for the head of John the Baptist? Because her mother wanted it. That's why she asked for it. And John the Baptist was beheaded, get this, because he held to a biblical ethic for marriage and divorce. That's why he was beheaded. Just basic facts. Now we know that the Herodians, who are followers of Herod, have paired up with the Pharisees in Mark chapter 3 to plot for the destruction of Jesus. We've already been told that. We're going to be told it again in Mark chapter 12. The Herodians and the Pharisees are working together to destroy Jesus. Now let's just enter into the logic for a second. Hey, when John the Baptist spoke against the marriage of Herod to Herodias, he lost his head. If we could get Jesus to speak about marriage and divorce biblically... And apply it directly to Herod and Herodias, the same thing might happen. We might get him executed as well. It seems very plausible that the quality of the test that the the Pharisees are bringing before Jesus is the same kind of trial and difficulty that John the Baptist found himself in with Herod and Herodias. And so Jesus is, of course, going to be very wise and careful with his instruction here to the Pharisees. And so there are things that he says, and there are things that he doesn't say regarding this subject. Notice he does not fall into the trap. Instead of responding to their question about divorce, he does what he so often does. He asks them a question in return, and he gets them to say things. And then he goes back to the Bible and simply talks about the origin of Genesis chapter 2, the origin of marriage and its establishment, and he emphasizes three simple things. In verses 6 to 9 of the text, he distinguishes, and this is very important for our own day and time, he notes the created difference between male and female genders. It's the first thing he notes. But from the beginning, verse 6, of creation... God made them male and female. Now, I don't think that we could have foreseen how important that verse would be for late 20th and 21st century Christians, almost 2,000 years removed from that statement. But how important it is that we hear that God made them male and female. Jesus is very clear about this going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. The gender differences are critical. In order, secondly, for the one flesh union. Look at verses 7 and 8. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The gender difference is related to the establishment of the institution of marriage, a unity that comes out of the way in which male and female are made. And notice the length for which this union should last. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Implied within that is no human orchestration for the separation of husband and wife, which is why there in the vows on marriage we say, till death do us part, recognizing the lifelong commitment of marriage. Those three things, Jesus is clear. Marriage was created by God as a one flesh union between one man and one woman. For a lifetime. Now, if you'll notice Jesus' instruction there, he's not answering the question on divorce. He's simply instating what is the original design for marriage. He goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. And by doing that, what is he implying? That divorce was not a part of the original design. He's answering their question and not. By positively stating what marriage is and by putting forth God's design for marriage, he is saying divorce was not a part of the original design. That's the emphasis in Jesus' teaching. And we would be unwise to not see that as the foundation for how this discussion should go. But secondly, I want you to see this. That divorce is allowed... Because of the hardness of the heart. Notice the language of Jesus in the text. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. Now, when Jesus says, what did Moses command, Uh, the Pharisees recite Deuteronomy 24. Go ahead and note that in your notes. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 5. You'll want to reference uh, that text uh, again later, and we'll note it as well. It is there where we see the first provision for divorce ever given in the Bible. And it's that which the Pharisees hear are actually referencing. They're right in saying that Moses allowed for a husband to give a certificate of divorce to his wife and the woman then to be released from that marriage. But what Jesus is noting here is that that command came not as a design from God, but it came as an allowance by God because of the hardness of men's hearts. That's what he says. It is because of the hardness of men's hearts that Moses gave you this instruction. Before the fall, there was no provision for the divorce. But after the fall, and an effect of the fall, is the hardness of men's hearts. And because of that calcifying effect and how it plays itself out in marriage, Moses gave a way out. He gave a permissive quality with regards to divorce. Now, to say that divorce is a product of sin is not to say that every divorce is sinful. Hear me in that. To to hear hear, that here, that divorce is a product of sin or to the effect of sinfulness is not to say that every divorce is sinful. There are in the Bible, as we will see here in a moment, biblically permissible and allowable divorces. We see that even covered there in Deuteronomy chapter 24. But what we say is that even when they are biblically permissible, they happen because we live in sin and in a broken and fallen world. That's an important part of what Jesus is saying here. Because of the hardness of your hearts, because of sinfulness, I want you to know that divorce exists. Okay, third. Third thing to see from this text that the biblical grounds for divorce are two. One, adultery, and two, desertion by an unbelieving spouse. One, adultery, and two, desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Now it's clear you even catch that here in the text in verses 11 and 12 of our text where Jesus cites adultery specifically as one of the ways in which a divorce may happen. It's actually in some ways clearer, and you might note this passage, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 is actually the parallel to Mark chapter 10. It's the same story, except it's further elaborated. And it's there where Jesus says that a person may not divorce except for sexual immorality or adultery. It's only there where he mentions it specifically in Matthew chapter 19. Now, you might ask, where did that come from? Where did sexual immorality become a reason for divorce or a permissible or allowance for divorce? Where that comes from Deuteronomy 24. Now, in Deuteronomy 24, we don't have a lot of time to be able to spend on this. Um, There is in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24 just a little bit of language that is used for this purpose of adultery. I'm going to quote verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24 for you. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, that's what the Pharisees were alluding to, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And then he goes on to elaborate a few more verses down. Notice the language, some indecency in her. And we think to ourselves, what in the world does that mean? Of course, that is a Hebrew translation. A translation that can be translated a shameful event or action. It can even mean nakedness as if alluding to the idea of adultery. The problem is that in Jesus' day, and he would be addressing this with the Pharisees, and if you look at Matthew 19, you'll see this. The question from the Pharisees in Matthew 19 is, can a man divorce his wife, and then they add these words, for any cause. For any cause. Now, the reason they add that language, and the reason Matthew's drilling into that language, is he wants to get into the interpretive tradition, the theological debate. There was a theological debate in the first century about how to interpret the words in Deuteronomy 24.1, some indecency in her. Did that mean that he woke up one morning and she burned the bacon? And this was indecent to him and he gave her a certificate of divorce. Is that what is implied? Or is what's implied a sexual misconduct It's related to adultery? that's in view. One tradition spoke one way, another tradition spoke another way. It's quite clear in Matthew's account that not only is the Herod, John the Baptist story situationally behind the scenes, but there's also a theological debate that they're seeking to pin him in. Which of the traditions does he walk in? Now, he actually makes it quite clear that he walks in the conservative one, uh, the one where only for sexual immorality, only for adultery, Is divorce allowed? He makes that very clear in other places. So we know actually where Jesus is on his interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, which helps us as we look at the text together. I want you to see that this is exactly, though, just as a pause. I'm throwing a lot at you. Just as a pause, this is exactly what's going on in the Christmas story. Okay, To help you understand the full light of what's actually taking place. And this is really helpful. You'll remember that when Joseph finds out that Mary is with child and them, they are not married and have not been um, uh, sexually um, active together, Joseph finds this indecent thing. That's essentially what is happening. And we're told there that Joseph, being a righteous man, has in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, he's following in the pattern of Deuteronomy 24 when Joseph does that. Now, I want to pause just for a minute because I think that passage is really critical, especially for those of you who are wrestling with divorce. Here's the reality of what it's actually saying in the text, is that it was righteousness in the way that Joseph went about the potential of separating from Mary that he would do so and divorce her quietly. That is fascinating that the Bible puts righteousness and divorce in the same verse. It's very important that you see that. Because sometimes we see divorce as only sinful. And the Bible here is clearly painting for us a portrait of the way in which a divorce can be righteous or acted out in a righteous way. Now it's speaking to the manner and the intent of Joseph's heart. He's not going to string her up publicly. He's not going to throw the book at her legally. Sexual immorality to the extent of the law in the Old Testament could even lead to death. That was the part of the extent of the law. He is not going to throw the book at her. He is going to divorce her quietly. Okay, But this idea of a righteousness associated with divorce is something I think it's really important to note. That the Bible on at least that occasion in the Christmas story notes that to be the case. Now I mentioned adultery. We think we see that in Deuteronomy 24, see that in Matthew 19, see that here in Mark 10. The little harder one is desertion by an unbelieving spouse. A little more difficult because of the nature of its instruction. Here's where I want you to actually turn in your Bibles briefly to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, the clock is my enemy, but I will do this very quickly. And you will be very patient and gracious for what I don't get to cover. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Look, Notice verse 12. This is Paul speaking. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, uh, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Here it is. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now notice in 1 Corinthians 7 part of what Paul is first speaking of is that we should seek peace and remain with our unbelieving spouse if we find ourselves in that position. So just because one is, is come to know the Lord and the other is not does not know the Lord... Um, doesn't give us an out with regard to that relationship. In fact, quite the opposite. Paul here is instructing and saying, we should be one. We should seek to stay together. In fact, it's a holy effect on that spouse to have you present. It's holy on your children for them to be with you as one who is of, of the Lord. But notice he says, if the unbelieving spouse wants to go, Paul says, let it be so. He doesn't bind the believer in that context, but says allows them to be able to let that unbelieving spouse go. This is why as we look at the text of Scripture, we would say that adultery is one of the allowable um, exceptions for divorce and secondly, desertion by an unbelieving uh, spouse. Now, finally, fourth, we are to remarry... Are able to remarry if the divorce was biblically permissible. But if the divorce was not biblically permissible, we are to remain as we are or be reconciled to our spouse. Now, notice this if you're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verses 10 and 11. He says, To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. What Paul is saying here is someone gets divorced on unbiblical grounds, uh, they should remain as they are, meaning they should remain single and seek to be reconciled to their spouse. But they should not go and marry someone else. This is part of what Jesus is speaking to here in Mark 10 when he says, Someone who leaves their spouse and marries another commits adultery. If they do marry someone else, that person has fallen into sin. And so in Matthew 19 and here in Mark 10 and 1 Corinthians 7, it seems that all of these things are in view. If You'll see here the Bible's teaching. You see it's sort of instruction, at least in Cliff Note version from Old Testament to New Testament, um, these exceptions and this purpose of marriage is part of what we see the Bible uh, teaching and instructing us in. Now, we mentioned at the beginning that every struggle, every marriage has struggles, every divorce and remarriage situation is unique and has complexities. I want you to, to see as you look at the text of Scripture, we need to walk together in these things. We need to walk together in these things. It's all the time in the context of our local congregation, but also engagement in relationship with, with members in this body where we are wrestling with these matters. And we do this together, honestly, with our hearts. And the Bible open, praying to the Lord for wisdom. I want to encourage you to walk with the church in these matters as they arise with you, as they arise with your family, They arise around you in context for wisdom. I want you to notice things like incarceration aren't mentioned in the Bible. Drug addiction is not mentioned in the Bible. Gross pornographic addiction is not mentioned in the Bible. What are we to do about these things? We must be sensitive to the complexities of what it is that we actually experience. And we must recognize that Jesus gives us and the Bible gives us clear teaching. And yet circumstances must be weighed with regards and aligned with that biblical teaching. So for instance, you noticed in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when Paul said, I say not the Lord. Sometimes we stumble over that language, don't we? What does Paul mean by that? Is he saying, is he giving an opinion? Should I take this or leave this? Is that that what he means when he says that? No, he's saying, this did not come from the lips of the Lord. But I now, in this circumstance, as carried along by the Holy Spirit, one of God's apostles inscripturated for you a now infallible and binding word. I now speak to you. If you find yourself in this circumstance, here's how you should operate. Now, why did Paul do that? Because Jesus didn't encounter that circumstance. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? That Paul is encountering a circumstance where there were people who were being converted in Corinth and their spouses were not being converted, and now they had questions. What should we do? And Paul is taking biblical wisdom, and he is applying it to the circumstance in which they find themselves. Don't you think that's what we should be doing as a church? It's exactly what we should be doing with the church. Now, we should not give simply patent blanket statements that they would simply cover all generalities and circumstances. We've got to get into the, the complexity and the mix of what's there. We've got to take the biblical wisdom and apply it. And we've got to sometimes say, in a very real sense, from a, from a wisdom standpoint, we believe that the Lord is communicating this in His Word. We believe in your circumstances. This is the context in which you find yourself. How might we peaceably Walk in clear conscience before the Lord to what is the right step going forward. That's hard work. It's the work of the church. The challenge of exercising loving, gracious, truthful guidance and discipleship and wisdom in order that we might be led faithfully. Now, here's what's important, I think, for all of us in this room. For some of us, maybe coming from divorce backgrounds, whether wounded by divorce or perpetrating ourselves, we we may find ourselves thinking, well, we failed at this thing. Well, here's, here's here's what's really interesting. Every marriage in this room has failed at this thing. Who among you have kept your vows perfectly? Go ahead, stand up. Who among you gets out of this whole discussion, Lily White? Not a one of us. We're all in need of grace. Do you see when when the Lord is actually looking at the Old Testament Israel in Jeremiah chapter three? You know what He says? You are like a you're like a woman of the night who has left me. You have gone after other lovers. And I have sought to woo you and I have sought to bring you in. But you, as as it were, divorced me. But I, he says, will make an everlasting covenant with you. Jeremiah 31. And indeed he does, doesn't he? In Ephesians chapter 5, we learn that the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that everlasting covenant. Though we have been those who have left our Lord over and over again, He has been faithful. And in His faithfulness, He refuses to divorce us. Though He has every ground for divorce. Isn't that a faithful God? Who has loved us so so committedly that He has not cut us off, but He has drawn us in and He is wooing us by His love. So much so that at the very end of the Bible, the final words of the Scripture... We are described as those who are a new Jerusalem adorned like a bride coming down out of heaven to meet that groom who is glorious. Do you see from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, what marriage is actually trying to teach us is not whether I have to stay in it or I get to get out or I can remarry or I can't. It's saying look to Jesus who is the only faithful groom for a bride who is always faithless and in need of grace. That's what the Bible is teaching us. And no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in together today, whether it's single, married, divorced, remarried, here's the reality, we're all married. And we're married to a groom who will never let us down. We're married to a groom who will be faithful forever. And it is that that the Bible was ultimately teaching us. In all of the wisdom and the complexity of sinfulness, let us not lose sight of the beauty of what God has done. Let us walk in truth unashamedly. Be faithful to His Word and wise in our actions and interactions on this subject. But let us run to the feet of the cross. And let us recognize that all of us are married. You know, you may have often wondered why there is no giving and receiving in marriage in heaven. We're told that in Matthew. There's not going to be marriages happening between people in in heaven, and apparently your, your marriage, as sweet as it may, may be, and for some of you, you're very saddened by that prospect. For others of you, you're like, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay if I'm not married in, in heaven. I mean, so Because sin is the reality of what it is that we face. and Is there no giving and receiving of in, in marriage in, in heaven? And, and there's a sadness for some of us in that as we think about that. But I, don't, I think we're missing the point. The, the, the point is not that we won't have our spouse who loves the Lord with us there. The fact is that that marriage that you have so pales in comparison to the marriage that you will have in Christ that all of heaven is actually marriage in the most beautiful and wonderful way. There's no need to give and receive in marriage. In a, in a remarkable way, all of the thing is Marriage. It's all of us being united to Christ together seamlessly with no sin, no hint of separation, no desire of divorce. It will be as things were designed to be better than that. It will be as things are fulfilled in Christ to be. And we will know the joy of maybe the marriage we never had. Or maybe we will know a joy of which our marriage was just a glimmer of. Or maybe we'll know marriage for the first time. Maybe we'll be remarried knowing that we were always married to the one who had committed himself to us long ago. Friends, all of us are going to be there. And in the beauty of that moment, all will be made plain. Our sins covered in marriage and divorce and remarriage. The righteousness of Jesus robed in his glorious, glorious righteousness like a bride coming down the aisle for her bridegroom, and all of the things we've haggled over and wrangled over and messed up and occasionally done right, we will know in that moment, even as we are fully known. And we will sing. We will sing. The joy and the pain all give way ultimately to the glory that is ours in Christ. Let's remember that as we prepare to meet Jesus even now at the table. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven. Your Spirit simply must interpret these things to us. I must make them plain to us. It must, must teach us this wisdom. Lord, much has been given today, but much left unsaid. Would you you help us all, um, dull as our minds are and shallow reception as our hearts often are, would you truly let the register of the gospel message in marriage be that which lingers with us most deeply, that we would understand the richness of what you're trying to communicate to us and the fact that we are often so caught up in just what's right before us in this life that we, we've hardly cast a gaze to the horizon of Christ's coming and hardly remembered the glorious marriage that is ours in Him. Lord, today, might You rectify that even in this service. And would You now encourage and strengthen us as Your people as we prepare to commune with You and to share in the glory of our union with You. In and by the Spirit. Lord, would you come now and meet us? Prepare our hearts in Christ's name. Amen.